The future of work isn't about shareholder value, technology, innovation, or automation. It's about being human and putting people first through actionable love. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast, where we hold deep conversations with extraordinary people to help you grow as a leader and expand your business. Now, here's your host, Marcel Schwantes. From the scenic city in Chattanooga, Tennessee, USA, welcome to another episode of the Love in Action podcast, now heard in over 100 countries around the world. Glad you are here. I'm thrilled that you have joined the Love in Action movement spreading across the world. If you're new to the podcast, each show we hold space for deep, real, and meaningful conversations with the world's foremost thought leaders, executives, experts, and influencers to discuss the powerhouse business principles of love and care that define today's best leaders and company cultures. We do it so that we can help you transform your workplaces, create business impact, generate profits, and make the world a better place. Love in Action in the context of today's episode is about helping each other achieve success in the workplace. One of the things I know about human nature is this. We don't like asking for help. I mean, we live in a society, at least here in the US, where we are taught to be self-reliant, to be independent, you know, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and achieve things on our own. But the truth is, none of us can go it alone. I mean, we all need people to support us, to hold us up, do us favors, pick up our slack and go to bat for us. And guess what? People are much more likely to help us than we realize. However, we're reluctant to ask for help. Does that ring true to you? But according to new research, those who ask and ask effectively move faster, achieve better results, and get more recognition for excellence. And that brings us to today's guest. In a new book called All You Have to Do is Ask, How to Master the Most Important Skill for Success, Dr. Wayne Baker breaks down the art of making strategic asks so we can achieve our goals and grow high-performance teams, which while doing that, we can also help others along the way. And so when we overcome our reluctance to ask, well, guess what? Amazing things happen. Even miracles, says Dr. Wayne Baker. So who is Dr. Wayne Baker? Well, he is faculty director of the Center for Positive Organizations at the University of Michigan Ross School of Business. His teaching and research focus on social capital, social networks, generosity, and positive organizations. He's published many books and written countless leadership articles in places like Harvard Business Review, Chief Executive Magazine, and Sloan Management Review. He's a frequent guest speaker and management consultant and co-founder and board member of Give and Take Inc., which develops the collaboration technologies based on the principles in the book. Honored to have you, Wayne. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast. Well, thank you, Marcel. I'm delighted to be here. So we start with a gratitude ritual here. What makes you smile when you get up in the morning these days? Well, what makes me smile when I get up in the morning would be my family. 
my wife. Um, in fact, this year is our 30th uh, anniversary. So we've been together for a while and uh, I'm grateful for that. Grateful for those years. Grateful to have Cheryl to be a part of my life. And I'm grateful for our son who is uh, now 18 years old, heading off to college in the fall. And um, so we're going to be empty nesters soon. Mm. We'll be adjusting to that. And so it makes me even more grateful to have the time I have uh, with him and us together as a family. That's great. Wayne, I'd like to get a little more uh, info on and the work that you do, just to get our listeners acquainted to the work that you do. And, that, and so what are you about, would you say? What, what is your why? Well, you mentioned that I'm the faculty director at our Center for Positive Organizations. And the why is really about that. So we strive to use science uh, to create practices that help individuals thrive, help teams thrive, and help organizations thrive. So that's what we're all about. You can kind of think about it as positive psychology applied to the workplace, positive psychology applied to organizations. And so that's a part of every course that I teach. In fact, uh, um, this weekend I'll be teaching the last session in my weekend MBA of 118 students who come on the weekends to take classes. And my course this entire semester has been about um, positive organizational scholarship and how do you apply that uh, to be more successful, to thrive in the workplace, and what can you do as a leader? Yeah, and that's why I love having you on the show. I brought you specifically for that because we have to be able to change our organizations from the inside out to become more positive, and we, we do that through positive psychology. And I love the book title is All You Have to Do is Ask. Sounds simple enough, but let's talk about, let's start from the top. Tell us why you wrote this book. Well, I mean, and specifically, why now? Well, I can trace the origin back uh, 21 years with a conversation that I had with my, my wife, Cheryl. So um, she would say, okay, you teach your MBAs how to analyze their networks. So I'm a sociologist and I learned how to do that. Uh, I said, yeah, I teach them how to analyze their networks, how to diagnose them, what's the strength, what's the weakness of their networks. And she says, well, what do you tell them to do? And I said, well, you know, I've got some stories and I've got some anecdotes and to be honest, I'm waiting for the bell to ring and run out of time because I don't have a lot. So that led to an interesting discussion uh, about the topic of social capital. So human capital is what we know, um, the kinds of things that usually show up on our resumes. Uh, social capital is our network, you know, which includes formal and informal relationships, professional and personal. And that's what we map when we do our network studies. And I said, well, social capital is networks, but it's also this principle called generalized reciprocity. So, you know, Marcel, you help me and I help you. This, that's direct reciprocity and that's great. We would want that to happen. If you helped me and I didn't help you, that would, you know, you'd wonder about me. That's important to do. But generalized reciprocity is a more powerful form, which is you help me. I feel grateful and it motivates me to pay it forward to help a third person or helps a fourth. And eventually it all comes back around. So I gave some examples of generalized reciprocity, and we started developing uh, what we call the reciprocity ring. It's a group or team level activity that creates that kind of generalized reciprocity. But what happened back then when we were prototyping this and I was experimenting with it, um, you know, I would start the same way. I would give a little lecture about the importance of generosity and of helping other people. But what I found was that was never the problem. People were incredibly generous with what they know, with their networks. But everyone struggled with making a request. 
And what I learned is that it's really the request that drives the whole process of giving and receiving. So I had to shift and I had to talk about, okay, let's figure out how do you, how do you make your request? What's an effective request? How do you figure out what you even need in the first place? How do you get past all the barriers that make us reluctant to ask? Um, and so it was really interesting. It went all the way back to that time 21 years ago, having that insight that it's the ask or the request that drives the process. Mm, mm, okay, and we're going to come back to the reciprocity ring later on. But I want to, there's so many directions we can take here. So I want to talk about first, uh, before we get into solution mode, is let's talk about the problems. And that is there's, there's lots of major reasons as to why we are reluctant to ask for help. W what are some of the barriers that get in the way? Well, probably the biggest one is that we fear that others will think we are incompetent or weak or ignorant, don't know how to do our jobs, whatever. Um, but here, the research uh, could be helpful for updating and even correcting that belief um, because the research shows that if you make a thoughtful request, people will think you are more competent, not less. Mm. And, you know, it's helpful to know that. That's why um, I would say you want to think about what's a thoughtful request, how do you make it, and so forth. And that's a lot of what I cover in the book for both individuals, uh, for teams, and for organizations. Uh, but that's one barrier. Uh, another is that sometimes we don't ask because we figure no one can help us. You know, when I use some of these practices, many times someone will take me aside and say, you know, I'm not going to ask for what I really need because I know no one here can help me. But my answer is always the same, which is you never know what people know or who they know until you ask. Mm. And if I could get them just to ask, um, it's no problem getting them to be generous and to be helpful. But if I can get them to ask, then they can see that it's actually true. You know, that incredible things can happen when people know what you need. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's drill down a little further about why we rarely give ourselves permission to ask. Maybe, maybe you've already answered the question, but I, sometimes I find myself not giving myself permission to ask for help because, again, I'm so self-reliant. <laughs> yeah, over-reliance on self-reliance is another barrier. Mm. You know? And I think we can trace it um, back to the habits we developed in school. You know, the, the school system really supports individual achievement, individual work, individual accomplishments. Um, but, you know, in the real world, uh, work is a, is a team sport. It's not an individual sport. Um, but we're educated in a way that it is an individual support. And so I don't think we develop the habits and the practices um, or even give ourselves permission to ask. Mm, yeah. And that brings me to one of the barriers. And this is big for me, Wayne, is that is that the, the, the barrier that for asking and giving help is, is lack of psychological safety. So, which is huge for a lot of company cultures that don't, don't foster that kind of environment, right? So obviously people don't feel safe to ask for help. But before we get into the solution side of, of the conversation, why do we find so many workplaces lacking psychological safety? Well, psychological safety means that people feel that it's safe for interpersonal risk taking. That's the official definition. But what that means is that they feel safe to ask questions, um, to even question authority, um, to admit mistakes when they make them, uh, knowing that um, people will be oriented to helping to fix the problem and to learn from it, not to punish the person who made the mistake. And of course, a freedom to ask for what you need and to give and get help from, from one another. 
a lot of workplaces are psychologically unsafe, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, and I think it's a management failure. I think it's a leadership failure because it really does come from the top. You know, I recently uh, published an article um, where I said, you know, the leader should be the chief help seeker, the CHS, like another, another C-suite uh, acronym for you. Um, I said, you know, the, the leader needs to be a role model of that behavior that makes it a psychologically safe workplace. And the way you can do that as a leader is by asking for help yourself, asking for what you need, inviting other people to help you and to co-create solutions. And that helps to set uh, the whole stage. Yeah. What about fear, Wayne? How does fear play a factor? Well, I think that's very connected to psychological safety and the concern that we're going to appear to be incompetent if we ask. And so, yeah, so fear can be a barrier. And in some workplaces, that's rational, you know, yeah. that they're not safe. Um, but what I found is that um, no matter where you are, you can start to use some of these practices to at least make your group or team a safer place to be. Yeah. I always advocate what I call the, the behavior first principle, uh, that it's really about we learn by experimenting with new behaviors. You know, it's hard to change people's beliefs and then get them to do something different. But if you can get them to do, do something different, then they'll update their beliefs. Mm -hmm. And another one that always comes up in my coaching conversations with clients is the one that you mentioned is bureaucracy. So how does bureaucracy get in the way of fostering an environment of asking? So that's another barrier to asking for and giving help. Uh, sometimes it takes the form of organizational silos or mm -hmm. excessive rules and regulations. And so here again, there are practices based on behaviors that will help to in the, let's say in the case of silos, to bridge those silos. I can give you two uh, quick ones. So it's a low-tech option and a high-tech option. So the low-tech option, and there are many examples of this, um, I learned from an executive at one of the large automakers who was in charge of two groups or two silos. One was racing and the other was advanced engineering. So if you think about those two, very different time horizons. So the you know, the, the racing group is focused on, you know, week to week, race to race, fixing the car, trying to make the car go faster. So very short time horizon. Advanced engineering is focused on the long term. They're thinking about new technologies, experimenting with things that may not see the light of day for five or even 10 years. But he felt that the engineers and the two groups could learn from one another. So he started what he called cross-collaboration workshops, where he'd get engineers from both groups to take some time to get together. Um, they can set their own agenda, but they talk about what they're doing. They start learning from one another. And one example is that advanced engineering learned how to get parts a lot faster mm. by using the practices that racing had developed because they need parts on a weekly basis. Mm. That's a low tech option. The high tech option would be to use a technology. Um, so you could use video conferencing. You know, a lot of the tools that I write about in the book are tools that teams can do to get when they're physically together or if they're remote, you know, so you can use technology to uh, practice some of these, these new behaviors and put these practices into place. Um, and then of course we created a technology called Givitas, which is a digital platform. It's like the reciprocity ring, but it's done through your computer. So much, much larger groups. You don't have to be in the same place at the same time, uh, but it's based on the principle of, 
enabling people to ask for what they need. Yeah. And then you've got this big network of people who respond. Uh, mm. Really amazing things have happened. So we call it Givitas, and that comes from uh, the word giving and Civitas. And Civitas is Latin for community. So the, I have to say, I didn't come up with that name, but I think it's a great name. <laughs> Let's get into the research. So you state that in the workplace, asking for help can mean the difference between success and failure. In fact, research has revealed a number of proven benefits. Can you share a few of those benefits? Yeah, so we can think about the benefits at the individual level, the team level, and the organizational level. So I'll mention a couple at each level. So for individuals, if we reach out and ask for input, help, and resources from other people, the research shows that we are more productive, we perform at a higher level, therefore we're more satisfied with our jobs, and we have less stress. Mm. For a team, it's similar, that a team in which it's safe for people to give and get help from one another in the team, and they also ask for help outside of the team as well to get resources and input uh, from others, that those teams are more creative, more efficient, more productive as well. And then at the organizational level, uh, you get a lot of the same benefits, uh, but also operational efficiencies and higher profitability. That's awesome. Okay, let's get into the, the practical elements of how to ask for help. And now, you talked about the strategic way of doing it that's going to achieve our goal. So can you walk us through how we can ask strategically? What does that look like? Yeah, there's a couple of steps um, that you want to address when you make a thoughtful request or a strategic ask. So the first, it starts with the goal. You need to think about what you're trying to accomplish, what you're trying to achieve. Uh, too often, we just jump and make into a request and we get something that we really don't need. Yeah. You know, so you got to start first with some preparation to think about what's the goal. Once you have that in mind, the next step is to think about, okay, well, what resource do I need that will help me to achieve that goal or make progress on achieving that goal? And here, I encourage people to think broadly. So it could be information, ideas, opportunities, uh, financial resources, materials, maybe expert advice, a referral, a connection, and so forth. So you've got the goal. You've got the idea of what kind of resource you need. And then the third step is to make what I call an effective or smart request. Now, my criteria for smart is a little different than smart goals. Uh, so the S is for specific. And what we know is that a specific request triggers people's memories of what they know and who they know. And that's the way that they can help you. Either they share the answer, the resource, or they can tap their network and get it for you. The M, now this is different from the M for uh, goals, which is measurable. Uh, and measurability is great, but here it's meaningful. It's the why of the request. Oftentimes people will leave this out just assuming that if you're making the request, others will know that it's why it's important, but that's rarely the case. You need to explain why the request is meaningful and important that it could help you be better at solving a particular task that you're working on, maybe how it supports your boss's goals or how it aligns with the organization's objectives. Uh, the A is for uh, action, um, that you're uh, asked for something to be done. Um, so a goal is a destination, a request is something that helps you move towards that. The R is for strategically realistic, so I encourage people to make stretch requests, big requests, but it has to be within the realm of possibility. And then finally, T is for time. When do you need it? And here, 
a specific deadline is more motivating than a general one. If I say, oh, sometime in 2020, you know, that doesn't motivate people as much as if I say, okay, I really need it by the end of this month, and here's why I need it by then. So you've got the goal, what you're trying to accomplish. You've got an idea of the resource that you need. You formulate it as a smart request, and then only then you think about who am I going to ask. Now, you might have known from the beginning that it had to be your boss or a coworker. So sometimes you do know from the beginning. But I always encourage people to think uh, more broadly. And I'll mention a couple of the ways of thinking about the who. So one is what I call the two-step method. So, you know, I might not know who the expert is I need to talk to, but I know someone who does know or would likely know. So I have a colleague of mine who um, runs an innovatrium. You know, it's a space for innovators and entrepreneurs to come together. And he uses the two-step method on a regular basis and keeps track of the results. And he told me that he did it 180 times in one year. And he says, you know, I often don't know who the expert is, but I know who to ask because who I ask would know who the expert is. So you think of the two-step method. Another is to think about your dormant connections. So a dormant connection is somebody you had a relationship with in the past, but your lives have gone in different directions. Now, we might feel very reluctant to reactivate a dormant connection, particularly when you have a need. Um, and here again, the research is helpful for updating that belief. The research shows that most of our dormant connections are delighted to hear from us and very happy to help. Mm. You know? And because their lives have gone in different directions, they now know things and know people that you don't. So they can be even more valuable sources of help. Yeah. yeah. Wayne, so that's a very strategic, almost scientific method for asking for help. Is there a, a wrong way to do it? I mean, most of us may not know how to uh, strategically ask, but we may, even, we may be doing things that are even worse without having the right tools or mindset. So what would be a really bad way to asking for help? Well, if you didn't really prepare all the steps that I talked about in advance, that would be a bad way. So let's say you weren't really clear why you were asking for something in the first place. You just somehow thought it would be a good idea. That's not going to come across very well. Uh, if you make a very general request, thinking that casting a broad net is going to be more helpful, uh, that's not true. So that would be a, a badly formulated request. If you're not clear on the deadline and you say, you know, well, whenever, well, then it's probably not going to happen. And then it's also important to realize that um, you know, smart requests we make in uh, our work lives and at home and in our community, but sometimes you don't have to make a smart request. So if you're at the dinner table and you say, please pass the salt, that's sufficient. You don't need to explain why you need the salt and when you need the salt by, right? So some things, you know, like an everyday conversation, um, you don't need to use the smart criteria. But if you're making a request for something that you need uh, for work, you probably need to, need to give it that thought in advance. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Okay, I want to go back to address the, the lack of psychological safety issue now as a solution to the problem that is lacking. So how do we create these psychologically safe places in which team members now can feel, hey, this is a place where I can ask for and, and even give help. What environment do we need to set for that to happen? Well, a team or group can use any of the team tools that I write about. And I'll give you a, a concrete one. Okay. Um, it's called the stand-up. Many people know what the stand-up is. It's, it's commonly used in IT and software development. 
but I think it has widespread applicability to any team or group. And so the way that it works is that a team at the same time every day, say 10 o'clock in the morning, would uh, stand in a circle. Um, If part of the team is remote, then they would come in through computer screens. Uh, But people get in a circle, and then very quickly, everyone has to address three points. Here's what I worked on yesterday, here's what I'm working on today, and here's the help that I need. And then it goes to the next person and the next person. Now, the reason this makes a psychologically safer place is that everyone is in the same boat. Everyone is going to make a request. You know, it's a lot easier to make a request knowing that everyone's going to make one than it is to have the spotlight shining on you and everyone staring at you while you have to make a request and everyone else is just going to sit back and listen and judge and criticize, right? So um, it helps to know that everyone's psychologically in the same boat. Now, in the beginning, people might make safe requests, you know, I mean, kind of smaller requests, um, but over time, they'll develop the habit and they'll also see through their experience the benefit of asking for what they need and not asking for what they need in that kind of group setting is letting the group down. So um, our staff at the Center for Positive Organizations has a daily standup, you know, so that's not IT or software development. And I recently learned that the entire leadership team at Wharton, it's about 25 people have now practiced and now are practicing the standup and they added a fourth item. So here's what I worked on yesterday. Here's what I'm working on today. Here's the help that I need. And here's something that I learned. And it can be something they learned in any sphere, something at home, something they read because they want to be a learning organization. And I thought that was just brilliant to add that as a fourth. Mm. Um, and that's a good way to think about these tools is that you want to adapt and customize them to make them work for you. Yeah, yeah. I want to bring the conversation of the the times that we're in. And you know, as we are recording this episode, we're in extraordinary times with the coronavirus becoming a global pandemic. Um, so how do we apply the principles that you teach for asking, whether it's a, a strategic ask um, or being able to give help and, and you're afraid to do it in, in such extraordinary times. Can you t- share some thoughts around that? I know we're all living in times that we have never experienced before. Um, and one of the prescriptions that we hear is social distancing, that we should limit our interactions with other people. You know, but that kind of goes against our natural inclinations in times of crisis is that we want to bond, we want to connect. And so I think it's important for people to still reach out and connect, but maybe it makes sense to do it through your computer. Mm -hmm. And so I did that yesterday with, there's a lunch group in Ann Arbor that gets together and uh, I'm not a regular, but I have gone to it. Um, But the lunch yesterday was all done virtually. So people had, um, you know, there was like a whole bunch of pictures of people and it was done through Zoom, I believe. Um, You know, people had their lunch at home. They're all working from home. And you know, while it wasn't a substitute for being together physically, it was pretty close. And so I think what people need to do is to ask to connect, to create some of these groups yourself. Um, The friends that you have and your family members want to be connected Use technology to do it. So you can also, you can practice social distancing at the same time to be connected. Mm. It also realizes that everyone is anxious. Everyone feels fearful. There's so much uncertainty. People don't know what to do. Uh, So another is to admit your own fear, concern, and anxiety and ask for help. Ask for input. 
Um, has anyone read anything that is helpful or what's a good practice? Um, is there mindfulness or meditation that's helpful? What is a reasonable way to approach a hygiene? Mm-hmm. I want to bring the reciprocity ring into the conversation. Okay, first define what it is and then how does it work? Yeah, the reciprocity ring is that activity that Cheryl and I created 21 years ago that was really the origin of this whole, whole process and eventually that was the motivation for writing the book. So the reciprocity ring is a team or group level activity. It's usually done in groups of 20 to 24. Um, if it's a larger group, we divide it into multiple reciprocity rings. The largest group we ever did was 900. And so we had about 40 different rings running at the same time. So it's a facilitated activity where someone is trained to how you, how you run the reciprocity ring. Um, but I can describe the steps. It's pretty straightforward. Um, is that after introduction, uh, people will then go through a process thinking about what they need. And I have some exercises in the book to help uh, people think about that. So they think about what they need in a request. They're trained in the SMART criteria. And then there's a big reciprocity ring poster that goes on the wall. You've written a request down on a request card. And then you will go up to the reciprocity ring poster and you will present to the group your request. Um, and the facilitator will make sure that you've covered the five SMART criteria. People might ask clarifying questions. Your request goes up on the ring, and then people think about how they can help. And if they can help, they fill out a little response or contribution card and hang on to that. Then the next person goes with the request, the next person, and so forth. And everyone knows they're going to make a request. That's the ticket of admission. That's the key. The request drives the whole process. And then later on, we connect all the responses or offers of help um, and you can really see how this, uh, this whole network of giving and getting help forms. Sometimes we do it, um, depending on how much time we have, um, we'll do two rounds. If we have two and a half hours, uh, we'll do one round if we have 90 minutes. And with two rounds, uh, we always make sure that the first round is personal requests only, cannot be related to your work, your career, your occupation. Has to be something for you personally, your family, your community, a charity, whatever. And then the second round has to be work-related. Mm. That's my favorite way to do it. Uh, but sometimes we just do one work-related round or one round where you get the pick, personal or work. Yeah, yeah. So I mentioned in my introduction that uh, so many of us are not used to asking for various reasons that you've already mentioned. And it's, it's, really, it's really a shift, I think, we have to experience in our minds. So how, how can we change our attitude from... Asking is just a bad idea. That's the voice in our heads talking, right? To asking for help is really going to help our businesses and help our team succeed. Well, one way to give yourself permission to ask is to give yourself permission to experiment, which is to take any of these techniques, practices, or approaches and make a commitment to try it for 30 or 45 days. You don't have to believe it's going to work because it's not about that. It's about the behavior. And we talked about the behavior first principles that you want to try the behaviors. Um, so that would be a way to start. And then to start in a safe place could be home, could be a friendship group, could be an online group that you're a part of. It could be at church or community or whatever it might be to practice by making smaller requests. And of course, listening to what other people need and think how you can help them as well. But it's uh, give yourself permission to experiment, to learn, and see what works for you. Yeah. And I love how you stress the importance of rewarding those who ask, which I totally agree with, including 
making asking a, an actual competency that should be developed and evaluated in a performance review. I love that that's how you reinforce asking behaviors. Talk us through some other ways that you can reinforce that across your culture. Well, people are more likely to do what is recognized and rewarded than what is not recognized and not rewarded, especially true in the workplace. So many workplaces are good at uh, recognizing, rewarding, helping, and giving, and they should. That's an important to do, but there's the other side to it. You know, 70 to 90% of the help that is given in the workplace is in response to requests for help. So it's a request that really drives the helping process. So in addition to recognizing and rewarding helping, you need to do the same for asking, for requesting. So it could be something informal where, say, the team leader will say, you know, Marcel, you made this request to the group in the stand-up, and you told me what happened as a result, and I really wanted to acknowledge that you, you, know, you were vulnerable, made that request, and here's how it helped the team. And so team... You know, this is something that we need to do on a regular basis. So it's reinforcing that through that informal recognition. And you can go as far as making it part of performance evaluation criteria, make it a competency that you measure and reward. We do that for helping, for being a team player, for cooperating. So it's not a big step to say, let's add the asking and requesting as well. Yeah. A lot of our listeners are senior leaders at the top of the food chain, and they make decisions about how to set culture and uh, policy, et cetera. So speak to them about the business case for developing the culture of giving and receiving help. Well, the business case could be made for both means and ends. So if we think about the ends, We know from the research that teams and organizations and individuals perform at higher levels and the organization is more profitable uh, if you have a workplace culture of generosity. And that means people give and people ask. Remember, it's both sides, the giving and the receiving. So we know that's true. So there's a good business case based on the ends. But I also think it's the right thing to do uh, for the means, which is that you want a workplace where people are thriving. Uh, where they're able to be their best selves, where they wake up Monday morning looking forward to work rather than regretting that they got to get to work that day or trying to avoid work. Um, You want people to be engaged. So if you're interested in engagement, you're interested in people thriving in the workplace, and we know those are all related to those business outcomes as well, then you would want to institute and implement these practices to create that workplace culture of generosity where people freely ask for, give, and receive help. Mm. Before we close to my final two questions, Wayne, I want you to bring this discussion home related to your book with a story about how giving ourselves permission to ask can, can literally cause miracles to happen. And you wrote one at the beginning of your book. Yeah, the story concerns a little girl named Christina who lives in Romania. Um, she was the youngest of three. Uh, parents love all three of them, of course, but you know they're really devoted to, to the little one, Christina. And so they were really distressed when they realized when she was about 18 months old that something wasn't quite right. Her head wasn't developing properly. They learned that she had a condition called craniosynostosis. So the human skull is made of five major bones, seven bones in total, and they're joined by these cranial sutures, which are these fibrous tissues. So if you've ever touched the top of a baby's head and you feel the soft spot, that's where these sutures come together. 
So this design enables the skull to expand as the brain and the head grow. Every now and then, one of those sutures will fuse prematurely mm. and the head cannot expand. So that means a permanently misshapen head and distorted face, which is a lifetime of social isolation and ridicule. It can lead to blindness, seizures, or even death. The chances, so it's a rare condition. It can be corrected, uh, but the chances of finding a surgeon who knew how to do it in Romania, they felt was pretty remote. Turns out that Christina has an aunt named Felicia who lives uh, in France and works at INSEAD. INSEAD is the business school in France. And they were being trained to do the reciprocity ring. They used the reciprocity ring for all their incoming MBA students. And they trained staff and faculty to run the activity for them. And so Felicia was being trained. Um, and as part of that training, you actually have to participate in a reciprocity ring. And they were doing the two rounds, personal and work. And when it came to the personal round, the trainer said, you know, make a request for something that you really need, something meaningful. And she thought of Christina back in Romania and made a request on her behalf. Described the situation and said, we need to find a surgeon who can fix, who can remedy this condition. And so amazingly, well, in some ways, not amazingly, I've seen this happen so many times. Um, someone else who was being trained that day was adjunct faculty, meaning he worked part-time, um, but was full-time pediatrician at Necker, which is the world's oldest pediatric hospital. It's in Paris. And he said, I know we have surgeons on our staff who can remedy cranial synestosis. And so he made an introduction. Christina and her family flew from Romania to France. Christina had the operation. It was a complete success. Um, she was back recently for a checkup, and it just showed everything. She's living a normal life. Um, and um, I have a picture of her on my desk here in my, at, at home in my study where just to remind me of the importance of asking for what you really need. And when you do, even miracles can happen. Mm. I love it, Wayne. Thanks for sharing that. Wayne, we bring the conversation home your way. And uh, with two final questions for our guests to, you know, speak authentically with our listeners. Personally, what would you say is really tugging at your heart right now that you'd like us to know? Well, what's tugging at my heart right now would be what's happening around the world. With this pandemic, with the coronavirus, um, you know, what's the right thing to do as uh, a father, as a family, as a community member, as a professor at the University of Michigan? I'm teaching classes, and now all our classes have gone online. Uh, fortunately, I anticipated this a little bit uh, in advance, and so I'm all set up for my next class, which I'm going to do just like I'm doing right now through my computer. And all the students are going to be somewhere. They're going to live stream it. Um, we're going to record it for people who can't watch the live stream. So they'll be able to finish out the course. Um, but that's what I'm thinking about is that what's the right prudent response to this? Um, how do we deal with the fear and anxiety? How do you stay connected when you have to social distance at the same time? Um, and how do you be a responsible member of the community? Hmm. Yeah. And finally, you get to close the conversation with one final takeaway where we can take it with us that's going to make a difference in our lives. What would that be for us? That would be to give yourself permission to ask, to think about what you need personally, what you might need professionally that will help you be more effective, more successful, and to make that request. 
And these days, maybe it's related to the coronavirus, and maybe you want to make a request for advice about what you should do, what you shouldn't do, how to connect with other people. But I think that's where everyone's mind is right now. And so I would encourage people to think about how you could make a request that will be helpful for you, your family, your friends, your community, and how you can help other people. It's been a pleasure and an honor talking to you, Wayne. I have learned from you. If people want to connect with you, learn more about your work, where can they go? They can go to the website for the book, which is allyouhavetodoisask.com. And all my social media is there. So LinkedIn, Twitter, phone number, email. And I would invite people to connect. And I also want to say that it's been an honor to be on your program, Marcel. I listened to a number of the podcasts before being a guest today. And I think what you're doing is so compatible with our mission here at the Center for Positive Organizations. And you're doing a great service in the world. And I'm glad to be a small part of it. Well, I'm honored by that. Thank you so much, Wayne. The book, again, is called All You Have to Do is Ask How to Master the Most Important Skill for Success. He is Dr. Wayne Baker. Thanks again. Thank you, Marcel. Great conversation with Wayne Baker. What are your takeaways from that? So here's mine. Make asking a personal and organizational habit and really a cultural expectation in your workplace. So, and also have the tools and strategies in place to support asking. Secondly, you know, this whole mantra of collaboration we hear so much about, it works the most effective when there's a giving-receiving cycle. You have to have reciprocity and generosity in place in order to unlock the power of collaborating in teams. I learned that from Wayne today. Also, you got to teach your managers how to create psychologically safe workplaces to build high-performance teams. And finally, learn how asking is the key to giving at work, at home, or anywhere in your life. Thanks for listening to this episode, Love in Action Nation. If you liked it, please subscribe on Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast, and we would be grateful for your kind, positive review. Next week, I speak with Charn McAllister, professor at the School of Business at Northeastern University. We're going to talk about his research on why likable leaders seem more effective. Until then, don't forget, love in action. It's what will truly set your leadership apart. The choice is yours. Hey, Love in Action Nation. If you're enjoying the format of the show and the topics we talk about, and you want to bring this conversation to your company event or conference, I would love to explore the possibilities. Whether it's speaking or moderating a live discussion or a Q&A panel, or even producing a series of podcasts before and after your event, let's talk. You can reach me by email personally at marcel at loveinaction.club. That's Marcel, M-A-R-C-E-L, at loveinaction.club.